We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I want to talk more about chronological snobbery, contemporary elitism within the church, and what I talked about yesterday, the definition of fundamentalism. Is it good? Is it bad? What's its historical meaning? And how does it relate to evangelicalism and general orthodoxy? This is very important stuff. We'll dig deeper into it today on today's Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to the Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. All right, yesterday I talked about John Stone Street's article with Breakpoint, where he talked about chronological snobbery and the elitism of contemporary thinking and leadership within our churches, within our culture. And again, it's this, it's this thinking that's grounded in the concept that all of our new ideas are always better ideas, and that what we just thought up, well, five minutes ago, is always superior to the wisdom of the ages. It's the arrogance of youth, if you will, an adolescent child who thinks he knows more than his parents, uh, just because he's young and his ideas are popular and in vogue. Do you remember the Beatles when they said that they should, they would never trust anybody? I think it was never trust anybody over 25 or 30 or something like that. It was a ridiculous statement because it was arrogant and it was rude. And it also was a statement that failed to recognize that in a few short years, the blink of an eye, really, in terms of the passage of time, that they themselves would be that old that soon they would be 25, 30, 40 years of age, and nobody should trust them because they don't know what they're talking about. Because of age, it makes no sense. It's fallacious to the extreme. So fundamentalism, evangelicalism, orthodoxy, all of these ideas exist within the church, and all of them are labels that have been given to the church, at times in a favorable way, and then at times in a pejorative way. I'm going to talk a little bit about how labels change over time. That a label given to the church may be negative at first, and then it takes on a positive meaning, or it may be positive at first, and then over time it is changed into a negative. We'll talk about that a little bit, and then I want to give you a description of the fundamentals of the faith, the fundamentals that were identified by the leaders of the fundamentalist movement. And while we're doing this, I want, you, I want you to ask this question of yourself. I want you to be thinking, are these ideas good or bad? Are they ideas that should be equated with radical, quote-unquote, fundamentalism? Are you synonymous and akin to the Taliban if you're a Christian fundamentalist? You've heard it all the time. Wow, those Christian fundamentalists, they're the problem in our culture. Is that true? And have we bothered to even answer the question, what is a fundamentalist? What does that mean, historically and contemporarily? What does the word 
mean? What's its definition? I want to deal with that after we take a break. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, welcome back to the rebellion. So let's deal with a couple terms here before we get into the to the fundamentals. And I have a list here. I have I actually have three lists that were identified in the early 1900s as the fundamentals of the faith. Kind of a creedal statement, really, is what those original fundamentals were. And I'm going to deal with that. We'll we'll summarize those before the end of the show. But first, think about labels. Um, I've talked before about the label liberal. Initially, that was a positive word, even in conservative settings, if you will, because the word liberal is a derivation of the word liberate, liberty. So when I wrote my book, Why I'm a Liberal and Other Conservative Ideas, I was trying to poke a stick in the eye of those that have co-opted the word and dumbed it down into essential progressivism and chronological arrogance. Uh, Liberal initially meant to give people freedom. A liberal arts institution, liberal arts college, was established to educate a free people, a free society, a free culture, to pursue the truth because the truth will set you free, and thus a liberal arts institution. You see how the word has changed over time. What used to be a very positive thing is now considered a negative thing, at least within conservative circles, and frankly, even within progressive circles right now, because they recognize They recognize exactly what I'm saying. That's why you hear people defining themselves as progressives today rather than liberals. Here's another word that has changed over time, Methodist. Do you know that initially that was a very negative term that was placed upon John and Charles Wesley because they were challenging the Church of England, the Anglicans. They were challenging that church for having orthodoxy, right ideas, but not orthopraxy, right behavior, and therefore John and Charles Wesley talked about the methodical, obedient life of the church, life of a Christian, that you should have a method of living. Well, they were called Methodists in a very negative way by those that thought they were too sanctimonious and self-righteous. Now, Methodist now is the identification of a given denomination, and many have forgot the fact 
that that label was very negative in the beginning, historically. So the definition of Methodist has changed, right? How about evangelical? Martin Luther was the first one to term to use that term. He coined the term evangelical, and it was a stand against the apostasy of the Catholic Church. Martin Luther had no desire to separate from the church or start a new um, movement, if you will. All he was doing was trying to challenge the church to be true to Scripture, the evangel, the good news, the gospel of by grace that you're saved through Christ. It's not of yourself, lest any man should boast. You're saved through faith in Christ. And also sola scriptura, that the scriptures, the word of God, the Bible needed to be the final measuring rod. Thus the word evangelical, evangel, the good news, the truth of the gospel. Now over time, evangelical has changed. Uh, I remember when I was in grad school, I distinguished myself from fundamentalists by saying, well, I'm an evangelical. And that goes back to what we're going to talk about today. Fundamentalism had been spun over the decades as being a negative, closed-minded, anti-intellectual movement. And evangelicals were perceived as Christians, conservative, biblical Christians, who were thoughtful and basically wanted to engage in the educational process. So there was this idea that, well, if you're a fundamentalist, you don't even believe in getting an education because education is bad, and fundamentalists are just backwoods folks that don't believe in learning. Well, that wasn't true, but that's the way it was being painted at the time. So I said, as a young graduate student, I'm an evangelical. I'm not a fundamentalist because I believe in the evangel, like Martin Luther, the good news, sola scriptura, the Bible, and the truths therein. Okay, now what does evangelical mean? Well, you've heard about the exvangelical movement and how many people are now disparaging the word evangelical because now, well, you're just a MAGA, crazy. Uh, you've contaminated Christianity with your politics, you evangelicals, you're bad folks. So I'm an exvangelical because I don't believe in evangelicalism anymore, evangelicalism anymore. All right, so you get my point. These words have shifted and moved over time. Liberal, Methodist, Evangelical, Fundamentalist. That's what I want to talk about right now. So I, I talked a little bit yesterday about defining fundamentalism historically. And again, a brief overview is it's grounded in American Protestant, Protestantism and its uh, emphasis on the fundamental doctrines of the faith back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Why is that time frame important? Well, it's when the um, it's when radical Darwinism was coming on the scenes, and higher criticism was pervasive within the church. There was a dumbing down in the historical veracity of Scripture. There was this shift from believing the Bible was the Word of God to the Bible is the description of man's relationship with God. So is the Bible the revelation of God, or is it a story about man's relationship with God? Very different definition there in terms of what the scriptures really are. And the fundamentalist movement sprung out of what was called the fundamentalist modernist debate. Modernists believed in materialism. Modernists believed in science, they said. They grounded that position in Darwinism. Now, I would argue that that was a very self-righteous and smug attitude because Darwinism is a theory. It's never been proven. I want to say that again. And that doesn't make me a backwoods buffoon to say that. 
Darwinism is a theory that has never been proven. It's a theory of origins. It's a theory that many have embraced, and now they call it a scientific fact. But you cannot prove Darwinism as being a scientific fact. It's just not there. The proof is not there. The evolutionary process, macroevolution, microevolution, are very different things. Microevolution, a canary growing a different size beak because of the environment in which it lives, yeah, we see that. Uh, Men and women becoming taller over time, if you will, because of the food that they eat or their environment or whatever caused it. Yes, you see microevolution within species. But you give me one example of cross-species evolution, of one species becoming a different thing. You can't find it. It's not there. So that claim that Darwinism is a scientific fact is rather arrogant. Well, back in the early 1900s, the church basically was saying exactly what I'm saying right now and was disturbed by the fact that many within Protestantism were abandoning the fundamentals of the faith in favor of modernism, which was a spurious claim at best to uh, be grounded in science. All right. So what were, where, where did the fundamentals come from? Let's talk about that first. Well, there was a Bible conference in Montrose, Pennsylvania in 1919. And at that conference, 6,000 pastors showed up. And as a result of that, that conference, they crafted the five fundamentals of the faith. And what were those five fundamentals? Well, I mentioned them yesterday, but today I want to add a couple other lists that grew out of that initial statement of five fundamentals. The five that came out of that first conference in 1919 were, quite frankly, very simple and very very orthodox. They were, number one, inerrancy of Scripture, that the Bible is without error. It's not just an interesting book of literature that collects dust on your, on your tabletop. It's not uh, stories that uh, are laden with mistakes. No, the Bible is inerrant. It's without error. That was the first point, the first doctrinal point of this Bible conference that came out of Pennsylvania. The Bible is without error. Number two, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus is virgin born. I remember when I was doing my doctoral research at Michigan State University, I was asking these questions of evangelical what, what does it mean to be an evangelical? And I ask, what do you think the word evangelical means with regard to the virgin birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his miracles? And one person said, well, those can be message statements. They don't have to be reality statements. That was a faculty member at a Christian college. So you see why number two is being pr- proposed the, as a fundamental of the faith, because even as early as the 1920s, the church was recognizing that we've got a problem that's brewing right now, and we're going to have a lot of people that are going to not deny the supernatural reality, the deity of Jesus Christ himself. They're going to deny the virgin birth. They're going to say he's just a man. So, number one, the inerrancy of Scripture. Number two, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Number three, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came as a substitution for our sins. He was the sacrificial lamb, the lamb without blemish. 
And why? Because for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we need a Savior, and that Savior is the Son of God himself, the second person of the triune God, who is the substitutionary atonement for our sins. So number one, inerrancy. Number two, the virgin birth of Jesus. Number three, the substitutionary atonement. And number four, in those initial five points, was the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, when the Bible talks about Christ's resurrection, Easter morning, it's a true story. It's not just a fable. These seem to be basics of the Christian faith, don't they? Does it sound radical? Are you a crazy person to claim, I'm a Christian and I adhere to those statements? What was the final one? The final one was the authenticity of the other miracles of Christ in addition to the resurrection. That when the Bible talks about and teaches the miracles of Jesus in the four Gospels, it's telling the truth. Now, there was another one that was added later on. It's either part of the five, or you could say it's number six. That's a little confusing in the history of this movement. But then there was the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. So I'm going to, I'm going to summarize those again for you and ask yourself a question. If you claim to be a Christian, um, and if you decide, define Christianity by the 2,000-year teachings of the church and the scriptures, is it crazy are you dangerous if you believe in inerrancy, the virgin birth of Jesus, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the authenticity of his miracles, and the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, that he will come again at the end of days to judge the quick and the dead? Well, the Bible teaches all of these things, and I would argue the Bible is the book that defines Christianity, not you, not me. Well, that was fundamentalism. Pure and simple. That was fundamentalism. Well, within a period of months, there were a couple other organizations that got together and said, well, we've got other issues in play right now. We need to expand upon those five or six fundamentals. One of these groups was the Niagara Bible Conference. Um, and it met, uh, it might have even met earlier. I, I'm In my research, I don't know if it met before 1910 or if it met directly after 1910. But essentially, let's just say it met at the exact same time because they were having the exact same discussion. Well, the Niagara Bible Conference in New York came up with a 14-point creed. And that was, listen to these, the verbal and plenary inspiration of the scriptures in the original manuscripts. Number two, the Trinity. Okay, number three, the creation of man, the fall into sin, and total depravity. Number four, the universal transmission of spiritual death from Adam. Number five, the necessity of new birth, that you must be born again, as Jesus said. Number six, redemption by the blood of Christ, that it was Christ's sacrifice, his substitutionary atonement, that gives us redemption. Number seven, salvation by faith alone. It's by grace that you're saved through faith, it's not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. Number eight, the assurance of salvation, that if you have confessed your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and that Christ has you. You're forgiven. You can't earn your salvation by your works, that if you are truly confessing and repentant of your sins before Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you're saved. Okay, the assurance of salvation. Number nine, the centrality of Jesus Christ in the scriptures, that the Bible is about Jesus and his work of salvation in our lives. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of Christ. Number 10, the constitution of the true church by genuine believers. What's the church? 
It's that entity that Jesus said, even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Number 11, the personality of the Holy Spirit. Again, back to the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. Three persons, one God. The mystery of the triune nature of God. Number 12, the believer's call to a holy life. Basically, the Methodist message that John and Charles Wesley were right. And other denominations that, if, like Christ said, uh, that those who believe will obey. Okay, that uh, you say that, you, James, you say that you have faith, good. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Uh, that even the belie- the demons believe but tremble. So belief, cognitive acknowledgement of God is something that Satan, uh, he, he acknowledges God. He knows God exists. So it isn't just that uh, cognitive um, acknowledgement and admission of God's existence. It's the believer's call to repentance and then a holy life of obedience. And number 13, the immediate passing of souls, of believers, when they die, into um, existence with Christ at death. Jesus said to the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And number 14, the premillennial second coming of Christ. Now, we could get into a long discussion as to why they put number 14 there. Uh, Premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial is a big debate and it goes back to essentially the authority of scriptures. And people were arguing um, over what the authority, what the word really said, and that we needed to honor the authority of that word in terms of what it was saying about the second coming. Um, a lot of debate on that one. But those are the 14 things. Now, I said there was a third statement. Well, this is a statement that came about in 1919 also, and this is from the World Conference on Christian Fundamentals. Again, all of these statements are coming about as a result of the modernist fundamentalist debate. And that debate was over this elevation of science, and I would argue that it was scientism, not science, because they were claiming that a theory was the end-all and be-all of science, and that's not good science. When you stop asking questions, you accept this one idea as being the end of the discussion. That's not science. That becomes propaganda. It becomes scientism, and you're worshiping that idea rather than opening your mind to pursue the ultimate truth to its very end. I've talked about that before on other shows. But what was this other doctrinal statement out of the World Conference on Christian Fundamentals, 1919? Well, here it is. Now, I want you to listen to these. These are nine points. Number one, we believe in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as verbally inspired of God and inerrant in the original writings and that they are the supreme and final authority in faith and life. Does that sound crazy? As a Christian, does that sound crazy? I would argue no. Number two, we believe in one God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are we not jobs for believing in that? Well, Does it sound very similar to what the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed says? Creeds that I've read to you on this program? Sounds creedal, doesn't it? So, basically, those that are opposed to these statements are opposed to the historic creeds of the church. They're opposed to the church. Those people who have given their lives, given their lives to defend the veracity and the integrity of the faith and not compromise. Number three, we believe that Jesus Christ was begotten by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and is true God and true man. Number four, we believe that man was created in the image of God 
and that he sinned and thereby incurred not only physical death, but also spiritual death, which is separation from God. And that all human, humanity, excuse me, all human beings are born with a sinful nature and in the case of those who reach moral responsibility become sinners in thought, word, and deed. Does this sound like a basic fundamental claim of the church? A fundamental definition of Christianity? Is fundamentalism bad to hold to? Hold to this fundamental of what the definition of Christianity really is? Number five, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures as representative and substitutionary sacrifice. And that all who believe in him are justified on the ground of his shed blood. Basic salvation message right there. Number six, we believe in the resurrection of the crucified body of our Lord. In his ascension into heaven and in his present life there for us as high priest and advocate. Clear teaching of the gospel. That the resurrection is true and not just a fable. Not just a metaphor. Not just a soothing story. This really happened, and that if it did happen, which the church has claimed, and thousands who were alive at the time affirmed and died in defense of that message, that reality, the apostles included therein, that if a person dies and comes back from the grave, you might want to believe him. You might want to believe what he said about himself and about you. Number seven. We believe in that blessed hope, the personal premillennial and imminent return of the Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. Premillennialism in there again. Um, personally, I would argue that if you adhere to all the other ones and you're postmillennial or amillennial, uh, you're still within the orthodox fundamental category of Christianity. Some of you listening right now may not like that. But I don't know. Uh, as I read Revelation, I don't know for sure. I don't know if Jesus is going to return before the millennial, uh, post-millennial, mid-millennial, pre-trib, post-trib, uh, millennial. You know, all of those debates in terms of the end times. Does it really matter if you've confessed all of these other fundamentals in your life? Good question, right? Number eight, we believe that all who receive... By faith, the Lord Jesus Christ are born again of the Holy Spirit and thereby become children of God. Uh, basically, the exclusivity of the Christian faith, that it's by, salva it's by Christ alone that you're saved. And then number nine, in terms of this statement, we believe in the bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust, the everlasting blessedness of the saved, and the everlasting conscious punishment of the lost. Okay? So, these are the fundamentals. I've gone through a list of five. I've gone through a list of 14. I've gone through a list of nine. Is anything in any of these lists crazy talk in terms of the historical definition of Christianity? Now, if you're listening to me and you're not a Christian, you may have chosen to not believe these things, but there's no way you can conclude that these are new, crazy ideas that a bunch of backwoods uh, Appalachian Mountain hillbillies made up in the 1900s or 1950s or 1960s to try to impose their religion on America. No, 
That is not what they're doing, and it is that, that is not the history of this movement. This is a list of the creedal fundamentals of Christian belief. And the reason it was created in the 1900s was a reaffirmation of what had been passed down through the centuries. It was not something that was anti-intellectual. It was not something that was akin to radical Islam. Those subscribing to the fundamentals were not against education. In fact, they founded their own colleges because they wanted these colleges and these universities to be grounded in those historic truths, to teach their veracity rather than to tear them down, to build up a next generation that was confident in its faith, that could defend the historicity of the faith, the archaeology of the faith, and the reality of these truths of the Bible, recognizing that there's an authority over and above us, and that frankly, the people that preceded us and were chosen by God to write these things down for us knew a heck of a lot more about reality, morality, and the way we should live our lives with ourselves and with God than we do today. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.